0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Mesh Tsunami podcast. This week, we we're offering five conversations from episode four, our review of muscled epidemiology and disease burden with Zobair Yanasi. plus from The Vault, an epidemiology discussion from back in 2022. Our Vault conversation this week, comes from an episode almost two years ago with Chris Estes, then the chief modeler for the Center for Disease Analysis Foundation. It focuses on the challenges in modeling 15 countries in parallel and accounting for the differences between them, among other things. The episode has a fairly complete summary, so I'll let my 2022 voice take over to share it with you. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations and a full extraisode from season three, episode 16, our discussion on what data modeling can tell us about drug and diagnostic development in patient treatment. The extrasode is on MRE and hepatogram and their place in clinical treatment of patients today. Much of this conversation stems from my question about what modeling can tell us about the value of treating F2 disease with novel medications once they are approved. Chris Estes suggested such treatment is supportable based to a significant degree on how much hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, appears in F2 and F3 patients. This leads to questions about whether HCC patients reported to be F2s are actually misclassified F3s, and then the degree to which the cost of medication will influence how payers answer the F2 question. The question shifts to which kinds of medications are likely to make the greatest commercial sense for treating F2 patients. Answer is complicated. And which countries are likely to have the greatest increased exposure to the Nash pandemic in years to come? Answer, countries with the largest increases in affluence and adoption of Western diets among Styles like China, epidemiology, and disease modeling have much to teach us about the impact of NAFL and Nash today, how that impact will change over time, and where we all should focus our efforts. These lessons are vitally important. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. The debate you can see three to five years in the future when drugs come to market is what about F2? Because you've expanded the population dramatically, the time horizon to having a negative liver outcome and the probability of a negative liver outcome are certainly a lot lower than they are for cirrhosis or even F3. But you're kind of right in the uh, middle of all these metabolic syndrome issues. Can you comment on the value of treating at F2 and the, based on the work you've done, the ability to understand which patients you're going to more likely want to treat at that point in Therapy with drugs as compared to just diet, lifestyle, whatever else.
1: Chris Estes. I, mean, I think you can make a compelling case for treating F2. So, there's studies that look at liver cancer among NASH patients, and you know, some of them find that 30 to 40 percent of liver cancer cases are occurring prior to cirrhosis. Now, as you go down less fibrosis, there's a decrease in liver cancer, but we know that there's F2 patients that are you know, developing liver cancer. It's a very expensive disease to treat, and in terms of cost-effectiveness and mortality, life savings, um, improvement in quality of life, you know, even these F2 patients should be screened at minimum and should be considered for intervention. And it doesn't just have to be you know, a therapeutic compound. It can be lifestyle intervention as well that we all know about weight loss and exercise.
2: Jaren Schattenberg. An interesting point. Let me just follow up, Roger. We agree that there is non-serotic NASH HCC and uh, it's driven by inflammation, but it's also driven by the amount of fibrosis. I'm not too sure about the F2 HCCs, Chris, and I think it's probably misstaged F3s or pre-serotic then. Uh, while I do agree that there is a compelling argument that could be made for treatment in those, I think uh, from what we know, it's more in the metabolic benefit, overall mortality benefit, if we treat the liver, than probably liver endpoints. I think that's tougher to show. And there's probably uncertainty, as you highlighted, around the stages, uh, the correct staging in these patients. And 30 to 40% is, is nothing that I would see here, but there there are clearly cases that fall in, in the non serotic categories.
3: Louise Campbell. Do you think that the drive to look at the F2s and below will be driven by the cost of the medication at a higher level? Because once we start to get the medications to market, it is going to be highly expensive, and that is a burden of cost that a lot of health authority or health providers are actually going to want to reduce. Whilst they're going to be doing it retrospectively, despite information prospectively that we know this is coming, they'll wait until the cost starts to mount up. Therefore, it becomes they drive their own cost to reduce it by looking at F2, looking at lifestyle, disease management, and screening earlier. So do you see it coming that way around rather than using the information that you and your teams and all of the data provide that we know this is coming? It's not going to be a surprise. It's just going to be a very expensive wake-up call. Yeah, I mean,
1: when we look at obesity, for example, we see that the greatest acceleration, you know, the obesity rate in the U.S. was accelerating the quickest in the 1990s. And that happened a little bit later in some other Western countries. So when we think about, you know, Nathalie Nash is a disease that can take decades to progress, we're just, you know, at the beginning of sort of a tidal wave. So it was, you know, only in the post-war period where, you know, the rise of processed food and the sedentary lifestyle is when it really started. But it's been accelerating all the way through the 90s, and we do see a large population that's at, you know, at risk of disease progression, and it's just going to get worse in the future. And the latest data we have from the U.S. show that the increases in obesity were accelerating in the 1990s, and then there was a leveling off where obesity seemed, obesity was still growing in the U.S. There was a leveling off. The latest data from the pandemic showed that 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 stopped. Obesity is accelerating again just as a result of the pandemic, especially among younger people. So we have the data now to show that. You know, it's really also goes back to the diagnostics is identifying those earlier stage patients who are most at risk of progression.
0: Let me walk that back to F2 for a minute, because when you talk about obesity, overweight, diabetes, cardiovascular, does the work that you do suggest that there are certain combinations of risk factors where in F2, they'll lend themselves more to drug therapy versus less? I ask in part because health systems are going to have to deal with it, but in part because one of the places where to me it bridges over to drug development is if I was developing a drug for F2, and I knew where the economics of risk and the epidemiology of risk were greatest, then that would tell me which patients I want to be focusing on in trial. I'm not sure trial works that way. I don't do trials. Jorn and Alina, you can comment on that better than I, but I'm, I'm curious, Chris, to what degree you see patterns that make sense at that stage in disease that would drive you in one direction or another in terms of recommendations to treat or how to
1: treat. Alina and Jorn, feel free to jump in. I think you're more familiar with the, the um, markers of F2. The assumption is that increasing severity of obesity and diabetes, we see greater level of obesity within an individual and diabetes at an earlier age. Age. It's just... It- is more likely to progress versus someone who's, say, just overweight in late middle age and pre-diabetic in late middle age. So it's it also has to do with the duration. When we look at childhood obesity, what is the impact of someone becoming obese when they're a child and living like that, being obese for decades and being pre-diabetic as a young adult versus someone who develops diabetes and obesity at a later age?
4: Alina Allen. Yeah, I, my opinion is that this is very complex and um, in terms of trying to make all the assumptions and, and model this, it is a lot of parameters to keep in mind. So as simple as age, if you consider that. So if you diagnose somebody who's 70, let's say, as an arbitrary age who has stage 2 fibrosis versus somebody who's in the 30s, and then their competing risks are going to be different. I assume, without a lot of modeling, that, that the 70-year-old is going to probably die of cardiovascular disease or cancer, uh, whereas the 30-year-old has a lot of decades ahead of them to develop liver-related disease. And that the second aspect is what kind of drug are we talking? Are we talking an antifibrotic, which is unlikely to impact beneficially cardiovascular mortality versus a metabolic drug, who is likely to impact that? So there's so many strata of how you approach this in terms of modeling. And in my view, it almost sounds like this should be based on mechanism of action, the patient's comorbidities, the patient's age at diagnosis. So there's a lot of parameters that need to be kept in mind. Once we have drugs, depending on their mechanism of action, we almost will have to do something like a benefit or futility model approach because the cost, as Louise brought up, is going to be very high. So is it going to be worth putting an antifibrotic into a 70-year-old with F2? Probably not, <laughs> but maybe maybe a different aspect to an anti-metabolic agent. So I don't know if you agree with this, um, this, Chris, but that's how I view this problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. So when we do our model, we account for excess cardiovascular and other non-liver-related disease among the NASH population and it's not. There's studies that also find um, elevated risks of non liver cancer among NAFLD and NASH patients. But once they actually reach a cutoff, and different countries have different cutoff levels, but in the 70, 80-year range, we assume that there is no more excess non liver mortality with the assumption that people that are developing NAFLD at that late age are probably not going to be progressing, you know, to advanced stages. And then as well, you know, there's other factors. Gender, we think that males might progress faster, and then also comorbidities, as Elena mentioned, and then, you know, possibly genetic factors that may not even be understood yet. So there's still a lot of research to be done.
2: Yeah, I fully agree with Chris and Alina, and it shows you the beauty on how physicians judge their patients. You know, They walk through the door and you probably get a lot of visual input. The way they start talking, you get an idea about the education, their potentially their time to think about food, and all the complexity of a patient that then is in front of a physician. The physician makes very simple calls and decisions and simplifies that. And the models are much complexer. Uh, anyways, why am I saying that? I think there's a certain size, subcategory in F2s that is in the snapshot moment that we stage the patient F2 doesn't tell us anything about the dynamic of the disease. And age is an important factor, but there's certainly fast progressors. So the concept of fast progressors and F2 patients uh, progressing quickly would need to be treated. Um, We're focusing on fibrosis and cirrhosis here from the liver endpoint. Um, Are those with a lot of the patients with a lot of inflammation in the liver? Are those the patients with a high NIT that might uh, predict that type of uh, progression? ELF has been established as something leading to liver endpoints. So if I have an F1 with an ELF of, let's say, 11.6, is this a patient that's more progressive now? ELF? is not the best example because it also correlates to the disease stage, but you get the idea. I mean, there's more than the liver stage to the patient than the stage when he walks through the door. There's many more aspects and and that's difficult for models because it's not linear again then because if that patient changes something dramatically or gets, uh, you know, bariatric surgery and drops uh, 50 pounds, it just changes the natural history. And that's, I think, the main problem we're seeing here in in predicting the future with that dynamic uh, disease as it is. Chris, you
3: said you did lots of Which are the countries you're most concerned about going forward in the modelling? Who are the big risks? And I know the pandemic may have thrown that out slightly, but I'm presuming having seen an awful lot of patients recently, the pandemic hasn't treated them very well from their weight, their motivation. So it's probably going to, as you've already alluded to, escalate the problem. Who are the big risks? countries that we need to watch out for in the world and the way this is going
1: well we look at it in two ways we have you know the general background population um, of countries so we can look at a country like japan and the prevalence rate of you know NAFLD NASH are increasing but the whole country's population is actually decreasing at this time so the number of NAFLD and NASH cases remain you know almost constant because it's just a country with a declining po- an aging population that's declining where you really see very large growth is in countries like china because the obesity epidemic didn't just start you know it didn't begin until you Know, in the past couple of decades, and you know, it's just been a skyrocketing rate of increase in childhood obesity in countries like China. And when you look at the future, the numbers are, are pretty scary because you have such a large group of people who who you know, until a few decades ago, you know, they weren't. It's really the adoption of the the Western diet, Western lifestyle, a sedentary lifestyle that's very rapidly increased the population at risk in, in China and um, you know other countries that have more recently developed. Now in Europe and North America, it's a growing burden. But it's more being driven by the aging, um, the baby boomers in the U.S. as a large cohort who's now experiencing the results of decades of increasing obesity and diabetes. So it depends on the country's underlying population, and then what did the trajectory of the obesity epidemic look like in that country? You know, as a we're using obesity as kind of a marker for for how an or how fatty liver disease is increasing, and then we also look at drinking. So we talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but unless there's no drinking at all, it, you know, there's an arbitrary cutoff between what's alcohol. Liver disease versus non alcoholic, but usually there is some component of you know alcohol involved,
3: yeah. And I think that's been important in a couple of the sessions that I've done recently with patients who don't realize when their BMI is high that alcohol intensifies, so that the units aren't recalculated depending on the BMI and the strength of alcohol and its effect on the body most of them to be fair aren't aware so whilst they may be drinking in with the recommended limits uh, 14 units for a man and woman actually with their bmi and their obesity that can change drastically and yet we nobody's ever recalculated what they should be drinking to stay within recommended recommendations for their size realistically so they think they're being good and they're not necessarily being as good as we think they're being so it's an interesting the more awareness that patients get i think the more we're learning the more we need to be handling that information.
1: We see this in the, some of the big elastography studies that have gone into the general populations of Europe, where they look at, you know, what portion of the population has elevated liver stiffness. And you see, even among young people, a fair portion that have elevated liver stiffness. And now they screen the, the population that, you know, they ask, they do a questionnaire, and if you were above the cutoff, they're going to say that that's not NAFLD related, that's alcoholic liver disease. But what portion of those young people are somewhere between not drinking at all and in between that cutoff for alcoholic liver disease? And how much is that contributing to those elevated levels of, you know, liver stiffness in young populations? That's a great
0: question.
4: And now back to Roger.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this recording.
0: If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put those in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to me questions at surfingmash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss what new information or product to expect in NIT space in 2024. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye bye now.